In January, then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called on the World Health Organization to fully investigate the possibility that the COVID-19 virus escaped from a laboratory in Wuhan. He cited new U.S. intelligence that raises troubling questions. But China's rulers have not been forthcoming. Is the World Health Organization making a serious attempt to get at the truth? If not, what can we do about it? Those are just some of the issues I'll explore with Anthony Ruggiero and Craig Singleton. Anthony is a senior fellow at FDD. He has more than 19 years of government experience in both Republican and Democratic administrations. Most recently, he served as deputy assistant to the president for national security affairs and national security council senior director for counterproliferation and biodefense. Craig is an adjunct fellow at FDD. He previously spent more than a decade serving in a series of sensitive national security roles, including overseas assignments at the U.S. embassies in Baghdad, Caracas, and Mexico City. I'm glad you're part of this conversation, too, here on Foreign Policy. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay. In science and philosophy, there's a rule known as Occam's razor. Basically, it states that the simplest of theories should always be preferred. So in other words, if you're out on the range in Texas and you hear hoofbeats, Chances are what you're hearing are horses, not zebras or wildebeests, okay? So if we know that COVID is a virus that comes from bats, and if we know the pandemic began in Wuhan, and if we know that in Wuhan there was a laboratory, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that studies viruses, including from bats, doesn't Occam's razor tell us that the virus probably was in that laboratory and somehow got loose from that laboratory Anthony, why don't you start? Sure. I mean, I agree with you that, um, you know, the one thing I would add to that is that the closest known relative to this virus, a virus known as rat G13, which was over 90, it's 96.2% identical to COVID, to SARS-CoV-2, was in the Wuhan lab, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That was a virus that, that was uh, acquired in 2012 uh, after some miners were cleaning bat feces in a cave in Yunnan in southern China, and those miners got sick with symptoms that are very similar to what we know as COVID now. Things such as dry cough and a fever and difficulty breathing and sore limbs. Three of the six miners subsequently died and most of the infection was in the lungs of these miners. Now, what we do know is that, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology had that virus. What we don't know is all of the things that they've done with it. 
So I should be clear at the top, we do not know what the origins of the virus are. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to be open and honest uh, that I believe based on the circumstantial evidence that it came from a lab. I, I think, you know, when you look at the ledger, um, and this is what we did when we were when I was in the National Security Council. You look at where the evidence points you, and the evidence is overwhelmingly right now, in my mind, circumstantial evidence on the lab leak origin. Now that doesn't mean they bioengineered COVID. It doesn't mean that they purposely released it. Uh, but now, knowing what we know about asymptomatic transmission, meaning meaning you can be sick without any symptoms. It's not, as the WHO would like you to believe, extremely unlikely that uh, the lab leak, uh, a, a, a person, a scientist got sick and started spreading it in Wuhan. Now that we also know that that market where the original, the Chinese tried to convince us that that's where it came from, that that's, the Chinese are even walking away from that. You got something you wanna, I can tell, you wanna say about that, uh, Craig? No, absolutely. I think Anthony's he's dead on here. I think we have to remember that COVID-19 is sort of happening in the shadows of SARS, which seems like forever ago to all of us, mostly because the United States wasn't that affected by SARS, but it was a big deal in Asia. And what we've seen since then is that the WHO itself has confirmed that safety protocols in numerous Chinese labs uh, back in 2003, 2004, and 2005 resulted in a like a whole slew of breaches where SARS that had been in labs through inadvertent release got back into the population and killed several dozen people. And the WHO itself was actually responsible for confirming that they had these lab uh, leakage uh, scenarios. So it isn't something, I think, uh, to Anthony's point that there isn't a history, there isn't a background, there isn't some sort of a factual basis to think that these substandard safety protocols at these labs could have resulted in that inadvertent leak. And key to that really is China's lack of transparency, um, as well as right Beijing's unsubstantiated narratives that COVID-19 originated outside of China. All of those aspects, and I think things we'll talk about and things that we have in an upcoming report um, that's about to come out, a memo just on this issue, we are seeing a repeat of SARS with the disinformation, the lack of transparency. And um, I, I think after the last year, we can all agree, uh, we don't want a repeat of this again. Okay, a number of things. So the, Anthony, the caves where the miners, and they were mining, they're not young people, the miners were, were working. How far south of Wuhan are they? About a thousand miles? Right, and that's the that's the other part of Occam's razor that you're I think you're you're referencing when you look at uh, you know there's a there's a, um, a person a scientist in the Wuhan Institute of Virology called uh, Shi Jing Li. She 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 studies coronaviruses. She's known as the Bat Woman by her colleagues. That's what her colleagues call her. The surveillance that she undertakes with regard to bat viruses and trying to find coronaviruses occurs in the southern provinces of China. Now, Wuhan is sort of centrally, or Hubei province, which is where Wuhan is, is sort of centrally located. When this outbreak occurred, Xi Jinping, now she was, she, was, she was honest before the Chinese censors got to her, I'm sure. She said two interesting things. The first is she was surprised that an outbreak had occurred in Wuhan because she thought that it would have occurred in the southern provinces. Now, mind you, for those who support the natural origin theory, they have to make the case that it 
it somehow jumped to humans naturally, whether it's direct bat to humans or bat to an intermediate species to humans in the southern provinces, and then somehow went dormant or didn't infect anyone, or we didn't have a huge outbreak like we saw in Wuhan initially, and then it showed up in Wuhan. That seems far less likely than Wuhan Institute of Virology had a virus that is very similar to COVID or SARS-CoV-2, which are essentially the same thing. The second thing that she said that that, that was very interesting is that, and, and she said this to the Scientific American uh, publication uh, late uh, yesterday, last year, early last year while the pandemic was ongoing. The second thing she said was she was very worried that it had come from her lab. Now, we don't know all the things that they are doing in that lab, but you know who does? She does. <laughs> and that's why she was worried. Now, she's tried to convince us that that she went back and looked at everything, things that they won't allow actual forensic investigators to look at, um, that she was comfortable with that it didn't come from her lab. And another implication of this, it seems to me, you correct me if I'm wrong, early on there was the theory, a lot of people came to believe it, that this virus probably was transmitted to a human in a wet market, which is a kind of a, like, you know, a, a, a probably an outdoor supermarket where they sell various meats, including game meats and wild meats. Now, if this had been a bat that was available locally, some hunter could have brought it in, it makes a lot of sense. But the idea that bats would have been imported to a wet market from a thousand miles away strikes me as very unlikely. Am I wrong in that? So Anthony started and then Greg. Sure. I mean, there's there's a chance it could have been transported in that way, but we haven't seen, you know, they, they've tested much of that market and the market theory has sort of fallen away now. I mean, that's not even the theory that they're going with. I think the the, the prevailing theory, which unfortunately is, is propagated by Chinese propaganda and the WHO study, um, which, you know, frankly, is, is just uh, the opinion of scientists filtered through the Chinese Communist Party, is that it somehow was on frozen foods or frozen came from outside food, of China. Yeah, yeah. They said, I mean, this, this is important because there's... If the, if the Chinese were being honest here, you know, this is a question I want to deal with, they're being honest, they don't come up with really unlikely theories and throw them out there in the hope that those, these theories will somehow stick to the wall. One of them being the U.S. Army somehow brought the virus into China. I mean, that's a pretty crazy theory. The other, that frozen meat coming from Australia, and they're angry at Australia because Australia wants a thorough investigation and has been bold enough to say so, despite their protestations. They're coming up with these strange theories that they're throwing out there, which also suggests to me that they're trying to divert attention and, uh, and, 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 and they're engaging in what we would call disinformation from the Russian word disinformatia, right? Go ahead, Craig. Uh, I'm sorry, I think you're I right. know uh, absolutely. I think it's the same SARS playbook. So one of the things that we've done is we've gone back and sort of reviewed, how did SARS play out in 2003, 2004? And to your point, Cliff, it's the same thing. Back then, the Chinese even uh, threw out there that the National Institutes of Health had created SARS in China. And that once again, uh, this was a, a US bioweapon that had been released on the Chinese people and the people of Asia. So right away, uh, you start to get into that classic misinformation and in some cases disinformation narrative that the Chinese have been propagating. And to Anthony's point about Dr. Uh, Dr. Lee in the lab, um, 
even SARS back then, the only way we found out about SARS is there was actually a, uh, a People's Liberation Army doctor who was also a scientist who leaked it to an Australian newspaper and said, this is all a lie. Everything that they're telling you about the caseloads, everything they're telling you about where the cases are is absolute fabrication. And it was that day that the Chinese government finally admitted we haven't been telling the truth. Here is the full extent. But it was months after the initial uh, cases were detected um, in SARS. And so once again, this is the same playbook. Um, what we've seen that's been a little more interesting now is the use of social media and the use of social media platforms, even with a nexus to Russia, as we were starting to do some forensic analysis to propagate these false narratives into Western media. And that's where it really starts to get dangerous because I think we've all seen uh, when you go back to Russian interference in our elections and how rogue countries are weaponizing these social media platforms that there are real world implications here when you're talking about a virus that's uh, infecting thousands upon thousands of people. And by the way, it's important to say that uh, sure we want to get the history right. That's important. Um, and um, sure we want to establish culpability if we can, whether at least for the record, whether we can do anything about that, I'll ask you later. But there's also a, a, another question, which is this may not, be, we want to be sure. Well, Mike Pompeo said, uh, we need to protect the world, not just from this virus, but from the next virus and the next. And the only way we can do that is to understand what went wrong so we can take steps to prevent it. And if the Chinese are, are not allowing us to know what went wrong, that increases the possibility that we won't take the steps and that the, we will have other viruses and other pandemics, which will cause death and devastation as this one has. Is that all, is there anything wrong with that analysis? Anthony? No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, in this town or in this country, you know, Democrats and Republicans agree on very little. The one thing they agree on is that, you know, we need to figure out what happened in the origins of this pandemic to prevent the next one. And just to, to give a little flavor into the, there's a, there's a lot of, description out there that the Chinese are hiding data, they are. And so what the Chinese are doing is that early on, so what we're talking about is fall 2019 and and Cliff referenced it, that you know they, they've made this accusation that the US spread it. There was a thing called the Wuhan military games or the military games, world military games, sorry, going on, I think it was in Wuhan uh, in October. And, and so that's one of the theories that the Chinese have put out there you know, the, the WHO couldn't even, you know, they're, they're not even believing that, which is the one theory I guess they've rejected. Um, but, you know, when you look at data, so the two things that the report shows is that there were over 76,000 individuals from October to December 2019 that had illnesses that are similar to COVID. Uh, and the Chinese, because they're the ones doing these studies, they narrowed that down to 92. And that's the, that, that, that is the only data that they have shared with the study group. Now, even in a report that, that is very, very flawed, the report says, hey, it'd be great if we got access to the 76,000 data because maybe we have a less stringent uh, algorithm that gets us more cases that we can start to investigate. That's one issue on the data. The second is that apparently in Wuhan, about 200,000 people annually uh, donate blood and, and they keep it for two years. 
And so the, there's, no, there's been no access to that too, because that can be studied, especially in September through December, 2019 for anybody. So the, why is this important? Because you want to see if the, the earliest known case now in, in China is in early December, what if you could back that, back that out from there? And we also have the State Department in January 2021 saying that uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology researchers were sick with, uh, with symptoms similar to COVID or seasonal illness. That's why you need to go back and look at that data in fall 2019. Rick, how much do we know about the kind of research taking place at the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I mean, it makes a difference if they know that, oh, we're sure they were looking for cures and treatments and, uh, and this was purely about health. It's another thing if we think that they may have been working on bioweapons. I think this one's actually a, a better question just for Anthony, given his background, but I would jump in and just say that um, one of the things that's been most interesting as we've sort of investigated and dug into this issue and the trying to, I think, connect the dots with the little bit of available information that we can is we are starting to see um, this growth of this industry and in places like China uh, through different types of technology where they are so uh, dismissive of sort of basic scientific principles, protocols, and sort of ethical procedures. And we've seen it um, for folks that have been following things like CRISPR technology, and we're starting to see things in, in other um, biotech fields. Uh, all of that is just so concerning because of the lack of transparency. And it is one of the few places in the world, um, even the Russians are more uh, forthcoming when it comes to a lot of this data. And so I do think um, it is sort of just indicative of how scary it would be if we actually got to some of these places, but also accepting that the likelihood of that happening is just so incredibly low and the Chinese are going to do everything they can to sort of prevent it. But I would definitely defer to Anthony and his expertise on the types of um, research they were doing. Go ahead, Anthony. What do we know about research? Well, I mean, the, we know some of the things they've been publishing, right? So we, we know uh, some of the work that the Wuhan Institute of Virology has been doing. As I noted earlier, we don't know all of the things that they've been doing with these viruses. Uh, there's some suggestion that there was military involvement as well. That's 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 been suggested. Just a suggestion? Uh, we don't know the military was involved in the research in some way? Well, that was in the statement from the State Department. Right. I'll, I'll put it that way. Right. Um, and, and certainly that, that raises some questions. So there's going to be the published research and then there's going to be unpublished research. And as I mentioned earlier, what they've done with the, the closest known relative virus, uh, RAT G13, which is what it's called now, we're, we're uncertain how much research they did on that. So that's a, that's a critical question that needs to be asked and answered by forensics uh, investigators, which was not part of the WHO study. That's the that's a critical problem. And then we have other research where they're doing essentially what's called gain of function research, right? So gain of function where there there's different kinds of it, but essentially they they might be taking a virus that in its current form is not infectious to humans or doesn't infect human cells, and they are they're they are uh, altering it. Uh, in a way to study it, to see if certain therapeutics and vaccines work against it. So there is a legitimate reason. And, and we've had three coronavirus outbreaks now since 2003. Uh, so there is a legitimate reason to do that. Now, the danger, of course, if you're making a virus 
that is not infectious to humans, infectious to humans, the, the, and the next step is then it gets out and it's infectious to humans. And right. if you're not doing it at the right biosafety level in the lab, where you don't have enough precautions on preventing it from leaking, uh, then, then that's where you get the lab leak theory. Because gain of function research can, let's I want to emphasize this, make a virus um, more easily transmissible and more lethal than it otherwise would be or was when you found it in the bat. Let's, I want to be clear about that. Is that correct? Well, I mean, it could be either or. It doesn't necessarily need to be both more transmissible and more lethal, right? Just to be clear. And, and this is part of the bat surveillance that they're looking for because the theory is, is that SARS came from a bat and went to a what's known as a civet cat and then to humans. And then MERS, which is the other coronavirus that outbreak that we've dealt with, went from a bat to a camel to a human. And so, so the part of the bat surveillance that they're undertaking is to try and learn more about these coronaviruses and to try and, in their words, I mean, they, they've been very open and vocal about it. American researchers have done the same thing. Um, and, and frankly, American researchers work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology on some of these things. Uh, and so that, that that's a challenge. It's, it's sort of a sort of a razor's edge here, right? Where you have you're working on these dangerous viruses um, and you might be making them more dangerous. And then, you know, what are the, what, what are the controls to make sure that that doesn't get out? Well, just to follow up on that, on two things you said, one is what kind of support has the U S been given, uh, been giving to the one Institute of virology money, scientific support Has Anthony Fauci been involved in that. Did we have essentially an investment in this, and if we did, what we did, we make maintain the controls, the safety controls that an institute like that should have. Or some of the answers to those questions, we know some we may not. Tell me what you know. Go ahead, Anthony. Well, well I think I mean some of these studies have been funded by uh, NIH. I mean that's you, you know they 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 declare those when those studies are published. Uh, and they involve American researchers, um, including one researcher who's a member of the WHO team. Um, now, I, I don't, I don't think the funding and American researchers gives us any real access to ensuring that the Wuhan Institute of Virology does things the right the right way, right? I mean, sometimes money does allow you to do that. I think in this instance, probably not. Um, but you know. The research is open and available. I mean that you can. It, it's it's easy to find. It doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take that much uh, effort to find them. I, I certainly was able to find it pretty easily. Uh, and and at the end, you can see that it's some of these are, are funded by NIH. Craig, we 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 can pretty much. Uh, I think we agree here. I guess everyone may, may not, but that the WHO, the World Health Organization, did not do an adequate job here. And I think. It, my impression is strongly that that's largely because Beijing, China's rulers, wouldn't allow the health organization to do the job it should do, and um, and that the head of the World Health Organization um, is somebody who has been, let me put it diplomatically, too close to to China's rulers for a very long time, whether it be out of fear or for. Uh, 
because of benefits. I I don't know, but even though the U.S. funds the World Health Organization did before, and I think now, now is again, 10 times as much as China, it's China, uh, Beijing, that sort of sets the rules and, uh, and, 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 and tells WHO, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. Is that right? I think what we have is a classic scenario where we should be doing everything we can to hold a country like China accountable for blocking data, for being absolutely dishonest about what occurred um, at the start of this. I think we also have to remember and maybe um, be reflective that the U.S. has a role to play in sort of the WHO's pandemic mismanagement. The United States government has been giving the World Health Organization billions of dollars a year and no strings attached funds for the last decade, over $3 billion. And we never sort of demanded uh, much in the way of accountability. And so all of that extra money, in addition to these massive uh, structural governance and prioritization issues at the WHO, which have persisted for years, are sort of um, you know fodder for a country like China, which provides less than 1.5% of the WHO's budget compared to, for example, the United States over 20%. If you combine the United States with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you're at, which is the number two donor to the World Health Organization, you're at over a third of their budget. Yet we all ask ourselves, and I think we're still sort of trying to decipher, how does a country like China with 1.5% of the budget um, sort of exert this sort of kind of control or influence? We don't have all the answers there, but I think what we do realize very quickly is that because the WHO's mandate has expanded so much from where it started and what its constitution actually says, it actually provides an opening to countries like China to, to sort of throw their money around and to decide how they want to spend their funds. And they do so in a way that tends to support them. So to give a quick example, uh, almost all of China's money that they donate to the World Health Organization doesn't go to things like malaria or AIDS or tuberculosis or pandemic research. They spend a lot of their money on the governance side of the house of the WHO. So determining who gets hired at the WHO, for determining who gets promoted at the WHO, for determining accountability and basic um, sort of uh, independent authorities within the governance structure. And that's where the Chinese have been so smart about using their limited uh, financial contributions to give like a frame of reference, um, about $85 million over the course of two years. In the United States government, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it really does go down to how the Chinese are um, establishing these sort of relationships, and you mentioned with the director general, how they are aligning their funds in a way that is smart for them, in a way that the United States currently doesn't do. It's something that we think needs to change. Um, and how they have been able, time and time again, to get away with not being transparent and to get away uh, with not providing basic data. And absent some sort of a change, uh, you know, just like countries like Iran, well, why would they? There's no, there's no consequence. Um, so they're just going to continue that to sort of protect themselves. Taiwan uh, had one of the most effective responses to this and also warned the WHO. And, be, and as I understand, Anthony, the WHO was instructed by Beijing to, to ignore Taiwan. Is that, is that a fair evaluation of what happened? Yeah, we're not, I mean, I'm not sure what happened uh, with regard to Taiwan and the WHO. I mean, I do know that, you know, the D WHO missteps at the very beginning of the pandemic was just amplifying what the Chinese were doing, what the Chinese Communist Party was doing. And the two 
the the two parts that that really China withheld from us. I mean, I, I was chairing some of the initial meetings in response to the what what will would become the pandemic. But two critical issues that they essentially held from us was human to human transmission. I think the Chinese likely knew that um, even even early on in January, and asymptomatic spread. So spread without any symptoms and that could have changed how we approached, how the United States approached uh, the coming pandemic. And that information was withheld by the Chinese and the WHO did not force them uh, to share that. And, and certainly that, that, that is the challenge, I think. Uh, and I know Craig and I have talked about this a lot, which is, and having worked on this issue, worked on Ebola and other outbreaks, not all outbreaks are the same, right? Where you have a country, you might have an outbreak in a country a different kind of outbreak in a country, and they're interested in our assistance. They share information, they share data. You collaborate on how to how to stop that outbreak. Uh, you know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Ebola outbreaks comes to mind, at least the ones that, that I, I addressed when I was at the NSC. But then you had this other category, which are from authoritarian states, most likely, where they are hiding information. And so when we when we talk about, you know, when we talk in general about what do we do next, we can't think of this as a single dynamic. We need to think through how we approach outbreaks based on the type of information that we're going to be getting from the countries where the outbreak is occurring. So I don't think it's a one size fits all. And that might have been the biggest challenge in our response going back to all of these outbreaks is that we have sort of this one size fits all versus but it's going to be different depending on where the outbreak is occurring. Yeah, if yeah. I could just jump in there, Cliff, I, you know, I, on the Taiwan issue in particular, which is something that we feel pretty strongly about, you know, Taiwan's continued exclusion from the World Health Organization is just one more clear example of how the organization itself has prioritized politics over public health. You know, Taiwan's not been invited uh, to participate in what, what's called the World Health Assembly. It's the WHO's once a year annual meeting of all of its member states. Um, they were a non-voting uh, observer member from 2009 uh, to 2016. And this was a period of relatively warm ties between China and Taiwan. But as we all know, in the intervening years, uh, the situation in the Taiwan Strait has changed dramatically um, as evidenced by China's increasingly belligerent actions towards the democratically elected government in Taipei. And such moves have occurred in parallel with China's sort of draconian right crackdowns in places like Hong Kong, human rights abuses. And so while we all think that Taiwan should be back to having its observer status, we really need to reflect that once again, that could happen simply by the director general of the World Health Organization. They are the sole decision maker, the sole arbiter. That person's obviously, I think, as we've all mentioned, under intense pressure from China to not allow Taiwan in for purely political reasons. But it's also indicative of what we see the Chinese doing throughout the international organization and multilateral community. And at the UN in particular, Beijing attempts to erroneously apply a resolution, uh, 2758, which they believe forbids higher level Taiwanese participation at the United Nations, and which more and more countries are saying, I don't really think that holds up to scrutiny. Um, if there's one place where we should probably have Taiwan present, it's at the WHO, because as you mentioned, they had an exemplary 
auxiliary response. Um, and that was despite not receiving information about the virus from the World Health Organization. That was despite China's other attempts at other international bodies like um, ICAO at the UN, um, the Civil Aviation Authority, which is headed by a Chinese national, them preventing data getting to Taiwan about transmission and how we were attempting to stop this flow uh, through air transport and planes. All of this goes back to the central question of what we're seeing where these entities, these multilateral institutions, China's done just a tremendous job of attempting to coerce and corrupt them. And this is where the United States and I think its allies have, everyone recognizes the problem, yet we've sort of not heard from this administration yet what their plans are to sort of address that. Well, and let me follow up with that um, as we kind of move towards inclusion. So the, the, the head of the World Health Organization is Dr. Tidros Anhanam Ghebreyesus. And having been the head of an organization that has not done well in this, you would think the natural thing would be for him to submit his resignation, but of course he didn't. And then if, under the Trump administration, you lose your largest funder. That's another reason for Dr. Tidros to think, oh, it's time for me to go. I've just lost our largest funder. He didn't. The Trump administration pulled out of the World Health Organization and stopped funding. The Biden administration has rejoined the World Health Organization and turned the funding spigot back on. From a policy point of view at the National Security Council, Anthony, shouldn't somebody be saying to President Biden, okay, we're gonna go back in, absolutely. We're gonna restore funding, absolutely. But what an opportunity there are five reforms we've got to insist upon before we go back in. And they'll want us back in, so let's insist upon, because once we're in and where the funding's going, we can suggest things, but shouldn't there be a price to be paid for our rejoining? Shouldn't that have been suggested to him? Was it suggested to him, do you suspect, Anthony? Well, I mean, the time to have done that was before they knew they said they were going to rejoin, right? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. that's the challenge here, right? So, you know, unfortunately, uh, it seems uh, that that this is something uh, the Biden administration is willing to do, right? They they extended, for example, they extended New Start with Russia for the full five years with without it doesn't seem any real engagement, right? So, uh, you know, and obviously everything they're doing with Iran. So this this seems to be a challenge for this administration. I will say, you know, the the one thing from my perspective, having worked on um, rate, you know, uh, races for director general or the heads of international organizations is 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 the United States needs to ensure that there is a consensus candidate amongst the like-minded. And, and that's going to be especially critical since Tedros's term uh, is, is up next year. So if he doesn't resign, but the last thing we would want is a U.S. candidate and then a candidate from another like-minded. And then, and then we wind up splitting votes and, 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 and we wind up getting a candidate that we're not comfortable with. So that, that work needs to be going on right now. This may be the last question I ask you for right now. Do you have a sense whether or not the Biden administration is determined to get to the bottom of this mystery, or do you suspect that they're going to let it drop either because they decide there's just no way they're going to get good answers out of China? So, you know, why keep why why, why just keep on asking, or because if they keep this up, well, then John Kerry is going to say, hey, I. I 
I'm worried about climate change and I got to make agreements with the Chinese and you're making it difficult for me because they're angry with you because you keep scratching at this wound. Um, we've just got to let it, we got to let it go. Do you have any sense of, of, of where this administration is heading on this issue? Craig, you start and Anthony, you finish. Yeah, I, I think they're going to continue to rhetorically put a lot of weight behind it. But once again, we haven't seen a lot of ideas of how to uh, sort of address this challenge. I think we all accept at this point that the WHO investigating itself, uh, being the judge and the jury, sort of strains credulity. No one really believes what's coming out of the organization, what's um, what the findings are of any of these sort of interim reports. Uh, and so the administration has continued, right, to push for this idea of an independent investigation without sort of offering, well, what is that going to look like? And one of the things that we actually think might be valuable there, um, and for folks that were familiar with the, uh, the Iraq Oil for Food program, is the UN can investigate itself. And actually, uh, for all of the UN's many flaws, um, when they investigated the Oil for Food program, they actually identified a range of um, illegal, egregious, and fraudulent activities occurring amongst uh, UN contractors, UN staffers, UN entities, foreign countries. And that is all run out of the UN Office of Internal Oversight Services, or OESIS. And we've not yet heard um, a call from this White House um, saying that we really think that that's something that uh, OESIS should take up. And it's something that we think is uh, a possible path forward. Um, it, it might take a really long time um, for the results of that sort of investigation to come to fruition. But this is why we think sort of a dual track approach is really needed where we, some independent organization is able to sort of take the baton from the WHO away. At the same time, we start to really talking about reforming the WHO itself, which has got so many challenges in terms of mandates and accountability um, and sort of a real lack of uh, hard power and sharp power options to compel stakeholders like China to actually comply with the international treaties that already exist that say you have to tell us um, if there's a pandemic going on in your country. I think that's probably, in my sense, a better way to go about it. Um, I can't imagine this, though. The White House is suddenly going to say, we don't care about uh, getting to the bottom of this. Which, what's frustrating, I think, is the real uh, lack of political will behind that push and also the lack of ideas uh, to really go about getting those facts. And Anthony, as you answer this final question, address this, there, let's, you alluded to this. The, the team that went into China did not get the information it needed to come to a conclusion. I think everybody understands that. And countries such as Australia who have said we need better information, not only is that, be, that, that, that request being denied, but the Chinese are trying to take steps to punish Australia for asking, such as not importing Australian wine and foodstuffs and and really bullying any Australia and telling others, you don't want to get on our wrong side by not saying we know China's done a great job and the who has done a great job. Go ahead and finish up with on, on those notes. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I should have said earlier, you know, Ted Tedros deserves a little bit of credit, right? During the press conference announcing this flawed report, he said he didn't agree with it, right? Mm -hmm. He said he did not agree with their conclusion that extremely unlikely from a lab and that I'm paraphrasing that he's ready to send the right kinds of experts to China. Now, I'm not naive. I, I expect mm -hmm. the Chinese will not cooperate, but I think it's worth calling that bluff, calling the Chinese bluff 
and then perhaps thinking about some kind of sanctions or going down that road, at least for this administration, for the Biden administration, Sullivan talked about it, issued a press release. Blinken talked about it this week as well. He was pretty forceful. But I, I do think we should keep pressing to find the origin of the pandemic, uh, but we should also perhaps assume that that won't happen, that we won't truly know perhaps for years, if not longer. And then you've got to pivot to what I talked about earlier, which is how are you going to structure the U.S. government for pandemic preparedness, not for a one-size-fits-all, because we haven't gotten even gotten into bioterrorism and all of that. You need a, a flexible system that addresses natural and, and unnatural occurring events and the, the different categories I've described before, cooperating countries and essentially adversarial countries that are hiding things from us. And so that, that really needs to be where the administration, the Biden administration pivots toward. And if you get the origins of the pandemic to help you with that, great. But if not, that's where we need to move toward is, is in, in pandemic preparedness. Yeah, because we weren't properly prepared for this, really, were we? Well, no, I think we were not. But also, I think there's this there was this expectation that we would have the information, you know, to Craig's point earlier, you know, we, maybe we didn't learn the lessons of SARS properly, where the Chinese were hiding the information on that, too. And so we I think we just assumed we would get this information, which we didn't get in the beginning. Right. All right. We haven't solved these mysteries. They may never be solved. Thanks to China's rulers. But perhaps you shed a bit of light on what happened in China and what happened to the world. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Craig, for your insights. And thanks to all of you who are with us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.